Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Well, friends, we may have divorced Britain in 1776, but we were clearly not done with the royal family. As everyone certainly knows, Queen Elizabeth II was recently laid to rest and the world, myself included, could not get enough. Uh, People were compelled by her, compelled by the pageantry, even people who are not a part of monarchies or not defenders of monarchies. People seem to be really riveted, both by the late queen, by her legacy, and also perhaps by what happens next. Here to discuss that with me is Professor Robert Buckholz. He is a professor of history at Loyola University in Chicago. He's a leading expert on the British court, and he's here to talk to me about the late queen, the ceremony, all that stuff that we all can't seem to get enough of. Thank you for being here, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Professor Buckholz. Welcome to the podcast, Professor Robert Buckholz, an expert on all things modern Britain and royal family, a professor at Loyola in Chicago. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. We started to talk, where our show started, about how much people loved this queen. Billions of people watched the burial and the funeral ceremonies, people were really riveted by it. People around the world, people who are not a part of the Commonwealth, and people who do not uh, typically celebrate monarchies. Why do you think people loved her so much? It's a terrific question, and nobody has the full answer, but my guess is that we have this yearning to connect with something larger than ourselves. She was a symbol of that. We have a yearning to, if you think about it, a country is a kind of artificial construct. You know, what do, what do we all have in common? So the British came up with this idea that what would unite their country is a family. And at the head of the family is either a dad or a mom. So one way that I think of her is of the sort of, as the sort of collective mom of Great Britain and the Commonwealth. And sometimes you rebel against your family, but in moments of crisis like COVID, or when Princess Diana died, you know, she gave those great speeches. And what she was doing was sort of collectively putting her arm around the country and saying, it's going to be okay. That is psychologically very, very powerful. And you'll you'll run into people who say, you know, I didn't cry for my own family member, but I cried for Diana. I cried for Elizabeth. And it's a mystery, but I think also we get used to these public figures being in our lives and when they're taken away, even when it's expected, it's a shock. I'm old enough to remember when JFK died, Elvis. It's a shock. They're part of our kind of mental furniture. So that's another thing that people have lost. And I think that people, whether you're British or not, breathe. Do you think that some of it was personal to her, uh, Professor? Yes. I mean, you know, she certainly was a symbol but there were things about her. Of course, she was the longest reigning monarch, but other stuff, you know, like she volunteered during the war. She worked on cars. She contributed as a public servant in some very tangible ways. Is King Charles going to inherit the same type of adoration? You're absolutely right. That There were personal qualities about her that inspired that kind of love, her devotion, the fact that she was, you know, she, she would sometimes drop the mask and she turned out to be 
there were, you know, she would demonstrate that she was normal and had normal feelings. The fact that she was a vet, the fact that she was around for so long, the fact that in a certain sort of way, despite the fact she was queen of England, she was kind of unassuming. People love that. So does that transfer to Charles? Well, I think right now we're in a honeymoon period to some extent, right? I mean, he is recipient is the recipient of a lot of the feelings about her and to the extent that he handles that well and with dignity, uh, that buys him points. But yeah, he's a, he's a different personality. And to be perfectly frank, in some ways, I think it's tougher to be the collective dad than the collective mom. He's got that battle. And there's the fact that his his British people have not sort of warmed up to his personality in the way they did to hers largely because he he will sometimes be very honest about how he feels about things. Yeah, she managed to stay above it. I mean, that was what was interesting. She could give she did. these great unifying speeches in a moment like COVID, for instance, and she wouldn't be lambasted by other side by, you know, uh, either side of the British uh, political system or British partisans because she really managed to stay above politics. I'm not a royalist or a royal subject, but it, it does seem like we all know a lot about King Charles already. Like we know a lot of his story. We know a lot of his baggage. A lot of that stuff is out there. Whereas with her, she really, you know, we just don't know a lot about what was in her heart, you know, save what is interpreted in the crown in the Netflix series. Yes. And you know, who knows, right? It's true, though I think we've gotten a kind of slanted vision of him. People complain that he's a meddler. Well, if you look at, at most of the causes he takes up, environmentalism, uh, he spoke out recently against the forced deportation of people to Rwanda who were refugees. He's usually actually on the side of humanity, but he often doesn't give, you know, he's not often given credit for that. It's true that she was good at staying above the fray. Uh, there's been some criticism of late, as you know, about the degree to which uh, she didn't speak up about things like the Mau Mau Rebellion or the, the Biafran Genocide, which the British government had its hand in. He will be more likely to do that, even though he says he knows he sort of can't. But so what I'm doing is here, I'm giving him credit for having um, a, a conscience and for wanting to play a positive role in the world. He sometimes does that very clumsily. Uh, but uh, again, if you look at his public statements, you'll find that there's an intelligent man who I think has a heart. It was interesting during, uh, I think, his first speech after the Queen's death when he said, I'm not going to be able to do as much of the stuff as I used yeah. to do. I'm going to take a bigger role. I wonder how much of that is really true. I mean, he's not going to be I able do. to do a lot of the day-to-day -day stuff, but everybody knows that King Charles cares about the environment. Is he going to stop caring about the environment now that he's king? You know, I mean, is he really going to not use his influence? Yeah, no, I think, I think he certainly will behind the scenes and probably more in public than perhaps his mother would have done. You know, a funny thing about him that I remember shocked me when I read it is that as a little boy, apparently he was very affectionate and very somewhat emotional. And if you think of his training all since that time, it's all been designed to tamp that down, right? You're not supposed to show emotion. Uh, you're not supposed to take a side. You're supposed to be unflappable. And he can do that. Uh, years ago, there, if you, you, can, you can YouTube this. 
there was um, a scene where someone charged a stage he was on with a starter's pistol. Now, of course, nobody knew that it was a starter's pistol. This could have been a real assassination attempt. And the YouTube is amazing. He's standing there. Everyone else hits the deck. He's fingering his ring and sort of looking. He doesn't budge. And then you see somebody come out of the frame and, you know, knock him to the ground. Oh, I'm totally okay. going to YouTube this. I can't, I have, I so must who see knows, this. Who knows that, right? Who knows that about him? That he's, he's got some steel. He's got some courage. But I think the explanation of, of Prince Charles and now King Charles is a, a passionate man who is in tension with the expectations of the role. He's had to tamp this down. And I think you're going to see it pop out. I think he's, no one is completely successful at sort of tamping down all their emotions. And I, I think you will see moments and we even see moments of short temper, right? Yes, see with, the pen, he, with the pen. With the pen. With the pen. And on some level, we all want him to be unflappable and certainly kind to the people who work for him. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, on a certain level, high stress moment, he's just lost his mother. And, and we, we have a thousand people in this royal household. Surely, you know, he lost his patience. Now, as a teacher, have I ever lost my patience? Let me think. Uh, yeah, I have. I'm, 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 I'm a judge on TV. I never lose my patience. I am exactly. always super smiley exactly. to everybody all right. the time. You know, what's the problem? What's the problem? <laughs> right? So I think you're going to see that tension. And I think every once in a while, the real Charles will pop out. And I'm not convinced that that's a bad thing. Do you think that people have forgiven him and Camilla for uh, the hurt and the injuries that we all saw Princess Diana endure. Do you think that uh, people have forgiven the two of them? Some have, some haven't. For some, it went in. Even the ones who maybe aren't bothered uh, uh, sort of consciously by it, I think it went into this picture of him, is sometimes painted, that, that um, is, is, is not very flattering. Others have accepted that, so that, that the whole situation was a terrible situation. And uh, both people in the, in the marriage found themselves trapped by it. Uh, and, and others are, are going to be more forgiving. And, you know, life moves on and this kind of thing. I think as a historian, but also as a human being, I recognize that um, we all come from families where these sorts of things happen. I think other people will take the tack that it's a new day and he's got a new job. It'll never be forgotten. It was a, it was a terrible thing to watch, um, watch the spiral that uh, it's hard to argue that indirectly it did not lead to, to, to her death. You put it well, because certainly um, she was an incredibly tragic figure. I mean, when you die that way uh, and so young, I mean, that was just a tragedy. There's no two ways about it. But what you also said, I think is important is that it just seems sad all around. You know, he always seemed to love this woman. What is the queen consort do. So what will her role be in this? I guess it's not an administration. It's a, in the new no. monarchy. <laughs> in the new no, she <laughs> has absolutely no sort of constitutional role in that sense. She's there to support him. I would love to clarify, you know, there was all this talk about the title and what will she be. And a lot of people engage in wishful thinking that we can sort of manipulate the monarchy. Some people would like William to succeed. Now, the truth is, once she married Charles, she was going to be queen next to him. The, the, role is, the role is queen consort. I know they've tried to make that a title, but the role is queen consort. There've been lots of 
uh, women married to men who are kings and lots of a few men who are married to women who are queens. And they're there in support. Uh, they kind of stand at the head of the nobility in that role, but uh, they don't have a constitutional role. She's not a queen regnant, which is what Elizabeth was. He is king regnant. He reigns. It's his reign. And when his reign ends, her status will change. She will become queen dowager. I heard someone say, uh, to your point about William ascending, Charles uh, becoming king when he was in his 70s, maybe he should have just stepped aside and let his son take the job. And I'm like, why would he ever do that? Like, it's the one. Exactly. Why would he do that? (laughs) Like, the one thing. So what your one job is to grow up and be king. Yeah, so you get that exactly. job when you're 70. Why would you say, I don't want this job anymore? It's his one job that he's, he's, he's raised to that, for. The precedents for abdication in British history are terrible. You end up dead or shunned. <laughs> the Duke of Windsor got off the best, but all right, there's that. And thirdly, here's someone, no, I haven't heard anyone say this. I'm, I'm very proud of this. Okay, do you remember that Elizabeth succeeded as a very young woman because her father died somewhat prematurely, and it was a great shock. They say that when, you remember they were on tour in Africa, they say that when um, they told Prince Philip first, and his face just fell. He had a naval career, and above all, they were young parents. They needed the time to raise those kids. How did the kids turn out? How did it work out? Well, you know, did they have enough time with mom and dad? Did they have that important formative time? Charles needs to reign so that William and Kate can raise those children, right? The last thing they need is to be opening bridges and hospitals right now on that scale that the monarch does. So if for that reason alone, as a grandfather, he's going to give William as much time as he can give. Do you think it's sort of unfair to compare this younger generation to Queen Elizabeth's generation because she had the luxury and privilege of growing up outside of the, before the age of social media, right? We weren't capturing all of her gaffes. People really got to see her from a distance and love her from a distance. Uh, Not true of William and Kate, certainly not true of Harry and Meghan. By the way, uh, do you think that, this Harry, Meghan, William feud, is that going to have any lasting impact on the monarchy or do people just not care? No, I think it, I think it will. I think my own personal, and this is a very personal feeling. So the first thing I want to say about this is I'm reading, we're all reading and hearing all sorts of conflicting stuff. They're working hard towards a reconciliation. No, they're going to be cut off and sent into exile. I find that, like, don't ask me because it's Kremlinology. It's you would just as easily be able to tell me what's happening with Vladimir Putin right now as what's happening within the royal family. People send out signals. None of those may be exactly true, right? Uh, because they are engaged in a competition right now. My own personal feeling is that it, it does not serve the monarchy well to have this kind of festering wound. It does not serve the monarchy well to uh, turn its back on an opportunity to reach out to populations and groups that have some grievance with the royal family. Meghan Markle was American. Meghan Markle is a person of color. This is a person who uh, should be welcomed into the royal family, and this should be a place where the royal family can 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 back up its claim that William made that we're you know we're not a racist family. Now we have no idea why the the 
why the break happened. I mean, we're, we're hitting, getting hints, but in the end, uh, we, we don't We're all know just so guessing. Like, people are just guessing. Okay. People have no idea what is really So, so it could on. be that the part here is so deep that it will never, ever be healed. I'm sure of one thing. To the degree that uh, Prince Harry and, and uh, uh, Duchess Meghan share inside dirt and try to justify their position by alleging that they were mistreated within the family or by the royal household, that is the number one mortal sin. People are not into hearing them complain, it seems. I mean, you know, I know that I think folks have been moved by some of the more provocative things that she's talked about yeah. and, you know, kind of being treated differently or the comments about uh, the baby's skin color. I feel like once upon a time there was more sympathy and now people uh, seem to have less patience or less of an ear for it. Do you think I'm reading the room? I think you're reading the room very well. I would add to that. I would, I would flip that a little bit. I would say uh, people measure the monarchy by these very old standards. Of, remember that Queen Elizabeth's generation had World War II. And how did they face it? Stiff upper lip. We're not leaving London. We're never complaining. We will just do our jobs. And that's one of the reason pe reasons people loved her. They knew she'd gone through that. And that was how she carried herself for the rest of her life. Uh, I think Charles is somewhat good at, uh, about that. Uh, but the younger generation were, you know, they emote and, and they, 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 they share their grievances. And, and that's a good thing in that it allows us to try to cure injustice. But at the same time, it, it can be perceived as being whiny and privileged. And that's, that's not the place the Royal family wants to be. So you look at William and Kate and there are these moments of honesty uh, I haven't seen too many with Kate, right? I mean, do you remember when they got out of the car at Windsor and, um, you know, Megan and Harry, there were some PDAs and there was a lot of mutual support and they acted you know, like a couple that I might be or I might know. Um, William and Kate get out and Kate is, is just focused straight ahead. She's walking to the crowd. She has her job to do. She's going to do it. And that's what people like about a royal family. That's what they expect. But it's tricky. The people are fickle. When the queen acted like that at Diana's death, it was seen as coldness. That's right. Nobody liked that. So, they so wanted right, to see her emote. They wanted to see her emote. And and she, you know, give them credit. They read the signal and it took them a couple of days to adjust. They were able able to do that and, and do it very well to the point where uh, I'm sure the approval ratings went way up, even though there was still resentment towards the royal family uh, expressed in the funeral. Things got better for them the second the queen made that speech. Let's go back a couple of generations, because she talked about those who have abdicated. Let's uh, the Duke of Windsor has history treated him and uh, Duchess Wallace too kindly. Isn't there some support that they were actual Nazi sympathizers, not just in that way that people casually toss around the term "you're a Nazi" or "a Nazi sympathizer"? Yeah. But am, am yeah. I right? Uh, in that there is yeah, evidence that he was close to the Nazis and that they actually wanted to invade and put him on the throne. Yeah. The degree to which they agreed to that is a question. But you've got to remember in the 1930s, not unlike today, positions which we now realize were, were uh, horrific and, and, and deplorable and that no sane person would embrace were being talked about very seriously the same way you and I are probably shocked at some of the things that come out of politicians' mouths today that we thought, we thought we settled all that by World War II or, or, or by the civil rights movement. Okay, 
So the 30s were a period of flux and uncertainty, and in the middle of it, large chunks of the British aristocracy, longing for the kind of power they used to have, looked at what was happening in Germany and, and said, yeah, that's, that's you know, we ought to have more of that, more order and, and this sort of thing. And unfortunately, it appears that the, the Duke and Duchess of Windsor were, were sympathetic. And there were high-profile Americans who were sympathetic. Um, yes. Charles Lindbergh, yeah, for Lindbergh. instance, uh, was, yes. was sympathetic to the rise of fascism. Absolutely. So it certainly wasn't This is what peculiar. is so scary, that lots and lots of people can fall into these intellectual and moral traps and have a lot of, you know, what do you, do you actually need a world war to reset everybody? That's kind of what happened, right? And we can't afford another world war. So it's quite alarming. But yes, there is this, this past. And fortunately, the right guy ended up being king. Going back to your point about how people like the fact that they don't complain or they're not supposed to complain. What's the line? Never complain, never explain. There's a great scene in The Crown. Sure, totally made up, right? But love that show. But uh, where the queen is really chiding the Prince Charles character about complaining. And I think it's, you know, she says something along the lines of, uh, we are lucky we're still here. Nobody cares about your problems. Nobody cares about your wife's problems. You both sound really entitled and spoiled. It almost seems that like she just kind of had this, I may be queen, but at the end of the day, I'm a practical British grandmother who's, you know, we just stiffen our lips and we do what we're supposed to do and, you know, sit down and be yeah. quiet. And I think that there was maybe something that people really liked about it. But to your point, people yeah. also want some humanity. Yeah, it's really tricky. So she learned all that from the previous generation. She learned that from people like Queen Mary, uh, who was the the wife and then the dowager of George V, the mother of George VI, and, and and Edward. And she was, you know, she just went through life with this ramrod straight, you know, conviction and all that. But at the same time, Queen Mary was also seen as a somewhat aloof figure and has been portrayed uh, in that respect somewhat negatively since. So yeah, it's a very hard balance. You've got to be, you, you know, you're the national mother, so we expect you to be strong, right? Do kids, when you're a little kid and your mother is going through a crisis and you see your mother weep, that makes you uncomfortable. What's wrong, mom? That's, that's wrong. At the same time, as we get older, we realize, oh my gosh, our parents are people too, and they have problems and issues. So it's that sort of relationship, that very tricky relationship where a parent has to be strong, 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 but also has to have that ability to, to give you the hug and say, I, I understand your pain. I feel it too. Before we go, tell me why you were drawn to this scholarship. You know, for me, I, I'm thinking about like, I am an African-American woman born in LA to working class uh, parents. There's no part of my background that makes any of this familiar to me which I think in some ways is why it's fun. You know, like I yes. am really drawn. I mean, I'm not going to lie, yeah. um, you know, for yeah. all of the criticisms one. And I've even heard friends of mine who were who grew up uh, in parts of Africa that were ruled brutally. I am not a monarchist. I don't want a king or I don't want to be ruled by a king or queen. But I'm really drawn to a ceremony. I think the spectacle of it is interesting, um, if not 
if for no other reason than it's so foreign to me. What draws you in? Uh, you're an American. You don't, I'm sure, you're not looking to <laughs> throw out Congress and uh, bring back a king. Uh, tell me why you love this so much. No, I'm not. Though I would point out that they did peaceful transition of power a lot better than we did. <laughs> right? So, but well, actually, you've given me my answer in many respects. First of all, I too was born in LA from working class parents. I'm half Latino. My parents, and you know, was a telephone operator and a telephone installer, PBX installer for Pac Bell. Like you, and I'm not a monarchist, and I actually am not that interested in the modern royal family. I study the early modern period, the Tudors and the Stuarts, when it mattered, when they established that empire, and when they ran the biggest, most powerful empire on earth. So what fascinates me? Same things that fascinate you. I'm fascinated by, I work on the court, the royal household. So I don't work on parliament and I don't work on the executive exactly. I'm fascinated by ceremony and what it means to people. I grew up a Roman Catholic and it seems to me that even if the ceremonies strike you as odd, they have a meaning. They give a meaning to life that people find very important. And I'm fascinated by soft power. I'm fascinated by influence. I'm fascinated by, like if we were talking about Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky, I'd want to talk about Betty Curry. Oh, the secretary wow. Right? The secretary who sat outside the office, who let, you know, made the decision. Yes, you can go in. No, you can't. I'm fascinated by courtiers. So I work, my work is on the royal household. I run a database of everyone who served at the British court from 1660 to Queen Victoria. And I want to know about the page of the back stairs who runs up with the message and you give them a tip. I want to know about the women of the bedchamber. I want to know about the stables grooms. That's what I'm fascinated by. But when you work on that and you're the only guy in Chicago who works on that, you get this call, right? Let's talk about Elizabeth and the current royal family. And I'm sure I'm fascinated like anybody else, but like you, I'm not a monarchist. It is fascinating to watch. Sometimes like a very awesome spectacle, sometimes like a bit of a car crash, uh, but it's, it's, it's always news and uh, always something we're talking about that intersects with, re with really deep issues like colonialism and the British Empire. The, you know, can, can we love them and grieve for her and at the same time do justice for the people who were exploited and abducted and whose lives were ruined by imperialism? That's maybe above my pay grade, but we always have to be honest that those two feelings exist and are worth studying. And I think that uh, they're worth studying because it's worth pointing out to people that you can feel and believe two different things at the same time. You can both yes. believe that these uh, parts of the British Empire where people were subjugated and treated brutally are entitled to be free democracies and to uh, run their own lands. And you can also grieve someone who was, uh, by all accounts, uh, a very dedicated public servant who brought people together at a time, at times when, when they needed it. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that you can really believe two different things at the same time. All of world, our, our, our minds don't need to operate like yeah. a tweet. <laughs> we're, we're human. We're human. Um, you know, you you asked about Prince Charles and the future earlier. And one thing about him, you know, people have said when you look at him, when you looked at him during the funeral, it looks like he has the weight of the world on his shoulders. And I think he does because he's king, because he's got these family issues. But also, he was a history major at Cambridge. He knows this history. He knows the history of the empire. And if you studied how he behaved in Barbados 
when Barbados relinquished and repudiated its allegiance to the queen. If you listen, if you look at his speech, he strikes me as a man who's going, who understands there's a problem and a need to do justice. And that the problem facing him is that ultimately in the end, given what happened, true justice is impossible. We can't, we can't undo the terrible things that were done. So in that sense, he'll never be able to, he'll never be able to solve this. But I think my sense of him, what I know about him is he knows it's an issue, an issue that maybe was swept under the carpet when the queen was, you know, a, a, a lo- lovely little old lady that we, you know, we kind of rooted for. And he's not going to get that sympathy. And I think he knows he has to do something about it. And, and that makes his job very tough. Professor Robert Buckholtz, thank you so much for being here. My Los Angelino brother, I had no idea. I had no idea. Montebello, raised in Whittier. Oh, fantastic. Well, uh, one of my own, one of my own people. Professor Buckholtz, thank you so much for being here. Um, I've enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for being here. Thank you. My pleasure. 